Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I am joined today by Justin Scott Campbell. You can connect with Justin at his website, justinscottcampbell.com, and his LinkedIn page, both of which are linked in the show notes. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And in this episode, Justin has selected the organization Southern Poverty Law Center, which is also linked in the show notes. Now, why is this conversation for you? Justin really values creating a felt sense of love, safety, and belonging in his own life and in the workplace. This is something I deeply share with Justin. And it's something that until very recently, I felt completely ill-equipped to do. One of the ways that Justin makes this more accessible is through somatic work and through the information that is communicated through our bodies. This is, in my estimation, the path forward for us individually and collectively if we are to do our healing work around white supremacy, intergenerational trauma, slavery, racism, all these things that we think we can intellectually figure out. And don't get me wrong, I think policy is really important. I think it's important to be having intellectual discussions about this. But if we are to heal individually and collectively, it is going to be through somatic work. And Justin explains that thoroughly in this conversation. We also do a deep dive into understanding our history. This is an area that I definitely need a mirror held up to me on. I have a very narrow understanding of America's history of slavery and colonialization and racism. And so the deeply uncomfortable truth that I am sitting with right now is that white supremacy and racism live within me. And if I don't do my own healing work, I am going to perpetuate this in ways big and small. And Justin beautifully and compassionately holds this space in a way that he's not blaming or shaming. And I feel that I'm safe to explore this edge. And I think it's imperative upon us that we're able to have these really challenging, thorny conversations in a way that is met with really compassion and love. And Justin brings this in spades in his work. So this on a surface level might be a really heavy sounding conversation, but I actually think it could be our path to liberation and creating the bright future that we all want to be a part of. And it actually fills me with immense hope. People and practitioners like Justin are doing incredible work to ensure that we have the future that we want for future generations and children. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. <sighs> and buckle up for what Justin has for us right now. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, Justin. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure to have you. I appreciate Matt making the introduction. And as you know, Matt was a past guest. And I've also had the pleasure of interviewing Kara. So the whole Prairie Sakfa 
team, it seems, is is making its way onto Mike's search for meaning. And I've asked Kara and I've asked Matt and I've asked many other people the same question. I, I like to start my interviews the same way. And I would like to know what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? You know, growing up, I, I remember we had like a counter. It wasn't like a dinner table per se. We had like a dining room table and like a counter that we used could be, because so much of it was built around activities and sports. I think this is mostly high school that I'm thinking of, but I think I distinctly remember my parents cooking for us. I, I That sounds small, but my parents both worked and sometimes it was my dad and sometimes it was my mom, but there was always something to eat. And I think as a parent now, I look back on that and I see the value in it and how hard it is to maintain that consistency. But we always had a had a place to to come to. And that was a kind of stability I didn't even know I had at the time, in which now looking back on it, I see so much value in that. And, you know, I appreciate it so much more than I did before, because as a teen or whatever, you're like mm -hmm. mostly focused on the stuff you can't do or that you're not old enough to do or that your parents won't let you do or, you know, whatever. And so now being on the other side and having kids of my own, I'm like, oh, it's a lot of, it. it you know, it's a big part of it. It seems small. It seems like a baseline of sorts to be able to do that. But I feel um, grateful to have had that space and that consistency growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't look at it. I don't look at it as a small thing at all. I am, God willing, I'm going to be a father in August. So by by the time that, congratulations, um, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and yeah, by the by the time this podcast releases, it'll be pretty close to when my son will be born. And and one of my aspirations is as a parent. When I think about success, I think about being there at the dinner table with my family as many nights as possible, having a home cooked meal. And yeah. yeah, I I just don't I don't look at that as a small thing. I actually look at that as a lot of times on a day where I, I don't feel like I really brought it or was my best. I have to remind myself what a blessing it is that I can sit down with my partner, with my wife and mm -hmm. have a delicious home cooked meal. It's something that I take for granted, but that I aspire to not dismiss as just like a given or something that yes is small with my with my family so i i appreciate you naming that because i think it's really important it, that's how, that's one thing that i look at a lot is in all the things that i want to accomplish in my life this might be one of the most important things that i i take for granted as mm -hmm. well and yeah i'm curious i i guess i just want to name that but i'm also curious how you would describe yourself as a child you seem very multifaceted and you have lots of interests and and I share that with you and I'd be curious to see how that showed up for you when you were younger as a as a child you know I I was always a kid who loved stories you know I I had a second grade teacher who after lunch we would come into the classroom and she would dim the lights and we would sit at our desks or on the mat and she would read to us and specifically she read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And I I always credit that book, that reading of that book by her for unlocking in me the potential, the possibility, 
the potentiality of stories and of imagination. And so a lot of my childhood was spent imagining things, creating things. I have a younger sibling. They were two years younger than me and we would play. And a lot of that play was imagined stories where we would get things, put things together. Like we had a whole like Western narrative drama that we would return to and make, you know, a stagecoach out of a little table with a, you know, a sheet over, you know, we had all these intricate things that we would do. And a lot of them were kind of in the same way that for the children of the Narnia series, they went from, you know, World War II England into these fantasy where like we, you know, we didn't have a, you know, the same kind of, you know, there wasn't like a war in our house, but we just liked the imaginative space so much that we spent a lot of time creating these metaverses, so to speak, you know, <laughs> out of, out of toys, you know, out of objects, not just toys, but things that were turned to toys. And so, you know, I, I grew up loving the, the, the escape that reading provided from, you know, the, the normal, you know, and so most car rides I was reading most nights at, you know, I was reading, you know, and, you know, there were times when I was 11 or 12, you know, I would max out how many library books I could check out and then return them back after the three weeks and do it again. So, you know, I, I was, I'm still this way, but I was, I'm, I'm told I was very observant. I was also very concerned with others and caring about others and trying to take care of people. And yeah, so I think, I think that's, that's, that's a bit of how I would describe myself. Yeah. As a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So observant and wanting to help other people and also love storytelling. And I'm, I'm hearing elements of world building in there as well, right? Like wanting to, in some ways, maybe escape from the world and go and dive into another narrative or another made up world. But in, in other ways, you, it, in real life with your sibling, you you were making things up and making things happen and very imaginative. And we'd be curious to see how that shows up today, because it seems like that actually fits well with you're a coach, you're a facilitator, mm-hmm. you like to write I think you you like to teach like there's there's lots of elements of your work that that rhyme with or really harmonize well with the, the way that you seem like you always were. So how how would you say that shows up for you today? Yeah. I think that's a good I think it's a good note or a good noticing because the work I do in in terms of consulting and even coaching is around you know what's commonly known in corporate spaces as diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so the spiel I always give is diversity is just a bunch of different things in one place. It's Home Depot, it's a tool shed out back, it's a grocery store, right? But the fact that you have a bunch of different things in one place doesn't say anything about how you use those things, how they've been treated over the past X amount of years, et cetera, et cetera. And so the attempt to account for that history, right, is equity, right? The ability to say, Given that things happened in the past, we can't ignore that. We got to bring things to kind of an equal space. How do we do that? How do we equitize systems? And that's like, you know, pay equity, uh, getting 
boardrooms equitized, things like that, right? But that those are still both starting points. Inclusion is is in my definition where I'm borrowing from the work of my friend and mentor, Jerry Colonna, where he talks about, where basically I say inclusion is a felt sense, like everybody feels this felt sense in the organization of love, safety, and belonging. So that vision, right, for work, especially that last part, that's the part that I think we are still figuring out how to do. We, we haven't quite had enough case studies of places, organizations, companies that are really excelling at creating spaces where everyone, where the vast majority of people, let's just put it that way, feel a sense of love, safety, and belonging. So Walida and Marisha and the, the introduction to Octavia's Brood with Adrienne Marie Brown, an excellent book of science fiction written by activists, social justice activists in the same lineage of Octavia Butler. In that introduction, Willie Willi says, all social justice organizing is science fiction mm-hmm. because you're attempting to organize around and for something that's never been seen before and doesn't exist yet. And so the ability to inhabit a future that doesn't exist yet and then backfill what you would need to do now to get to there is an act of pure imagination to quote Willy Wonka. (laughs) Right. It's an act of pure imagination. Like there's nothing, there's no playbook. Right. I always say in this work, you know, we're at the far edges of the, of the known galaxy trying to put together speed racers from spare parts. You know, this isn't accounting. This isn't, you know, some other department that's been around for a long time and we have a long history of ledgers and, you know, this is something that's relatively in the scope of human work and business history, pretty new. So the fact that we don't have all the, all the, all the best practices yet or all the plans, right. means that a lot of what we're doing is about innovation and innovation is imagination about saying what could be Mm -hmm. and creating things and plans and ideas that don't, that don't exist yet. And I think, like you said, there's a lot for me of practice that I got of painting the picture, painting the vision of what could be so that, you know, there could be a sense of this is where we're headed. This is where we want to go. This is what it feels like to be there. Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? Can you feel it? Can you, you know, and is that better, different, what you want as opposed to what we're, where we currently are, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, one of one of the challenges that I've heard you speak to with regard to, I guess, building love, safety, and belonging, and and maybe our our resistance societally and as a culture around, like where where we have to look to create these things, is that I know that you. You know, you you've studied the work of Resma Menachem and and others who really look at historically, like how did we end up here? Like how are we where we are? And I I want to get into maybe the ways that you're want that you're wanting to innovate or how you envision this 
the world or or maybe not the world, but like organizations actually creating this sense of love, safety, belonging and actual inclusion. But I'm wanting to maybe start by putting the microscope on how are we here and like what are some of the lessons that people need to hear about the past that maybe we as a culture have not been looking closely enough at? Great question. I think my experience has been that the vast majority of Americans have a pretty razor thin understanding of history. Now, I, I say that not in a judgmental way. I more say that as a descriptive way, in a descriptive way of just the reality of the way in which, you know, 20th century specifically i think 21st century education is different in terms of history but i think in the 20th century if you if you went to school in the 20th century chances are you got one chapter on enslavement maybe and everybody knows that one picture of the slave with the scars on their back right they have this one singular week or day and i think the interesting thing about that is that most folks, myself included, until I, you know, began to do this work, didn't really know, for example, how much of a factor enslavement in this country was in the building of the wealth and the economy of this country. How did a, you know, trading post for the British Empire become the biggest economy on the face of the planet? You know, there is... There, there aren't really many other comps, you know, when it comes to that type of transformation. And so the book that, from one of the books for me that really lays this out, if folks were wanting to kind of do this exploration and do this work, is uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, The Making of Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. That's, that's the subtitle. And... In that book, the author, Edward Baptist, lays out very, almost like an audit, you know, of American, both history, but specifically economic history. And one of the things he says in the introduction is that oftentimes the way in which we teach about race and specifically enslavement in this country is we teach it, talk about it write historical narratives about it as if the worst thing that was done was taking the liberty of enslaved people away from them, right? And not to say that that wasn't done, right? But he says, if that's the case, if that's the only thing that happens in the, in the act of slavery, if it wasn't an economic driver, if it didn't create, you know, billions of dollars of wealth, millions of dollars of wealth, the equivalent of billions of dollars of wealth now with the with you know mm-hmm. if it was only that the rights were taken away then that means the way to rectify that wrong is to give people rights and that's it if though enslavement led to the creation at the time of the civil war where in you know i think he says something like 86% of the nation's wealth was held in the bodies of enslaved people. Like that's how much of the country's wealth was vested in enslaved. Then 
that requires a different reckoning, a different resolution, right? There's many people who have said this, so I'm not the original of this idea, but it's interesting, right, to think that you should be allowed to inherit the assets and not the liabilities. Mm. It's interesting that you should inherit the wealth, but not the debt. It's interesting. And I think that's an interesting place to start. And it's just a place to start thinking about why we are where we are. Mm-hmm. Because I think there is a kind of fog around folks when they see something like what happened to George Floyd. And there's a kind of like, why, why is this the way it is? And I think a large part of that is because we do not have the context within the context of this country and the way in which we've been doing things for a very long time, what happened to George Floyd makes a lot of sense. My mentor and friend, Dr. Veronica Kiefer Lewis says, you know, systems are incredibly adept at creating the outcomes that they're built to create. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't get on an iPhone unless, and, and, you know, and, and get surprised when it gives you a blue eye message. Because that's what it's supposed to do. And it's a similar, we begin to look back and back and back. We begin to see that the things that we're seeing now are vestiges of things that have not been addressed, named, right, healed from the past. Ways of doing things, ways of thinking, ways of approaching conflict situations, allocating resources, right? It's all continued. So the surprising thing, it shouldn't be that these events are happening. The surprising thing should be that we're surprised about them. Mm -hmm. So I think that having a clear understanding of the past also gives us the opportunity to move people specifically in that era of quote unquote founding fathers from legends into humans. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. what I always say is like, you know, there's such an interesting dissonance between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. You know, because we have this document that is almost the epitome of Enlightenment thought, right, in terms of the Declaration of Independence, written by a man who owned enslaved people and was in love with one and refused to free her or her children upon his death. He was an epitome of dissonance. And he knew that. And he said that. Jefferson said that, you know. One day, God, <laughs> I, I would hate to be alive when God brings us to reckoning for what we've done, you know, is a, is, is a paraphrase of what he he said, you know. Or maybe that was Washington. I can't remember. But, you know, th- it, was, it wasn't as if people were not aware <laughs> of the dissonance between owning pe- owning people and saying that all men are created equal, you know. And so what that does to me, too, is that when we look back at that time and we villainize people or we legendize people, it removes the humanity from them and it dehumanizes them in a way that's really convenient for us. It's really easy to be like, those are the problem. They're the problem. And what I always say to folks is that was seven generations ago, essentially. We're sitting under the trees and eating the fruit of those trees. That's 
George Floyd. That's, you know, they made it, they had a, they made a compromise, you know, that gave us the electoral college, which whether, whatever your political leanings are, everybody has had the experience of voting for someone who didn't win because of the electoral college, you know, those are the last, you know what I'm saying? So the popular vote versus electoral college, the, the, elect- the idea of electoral college is, is a vestige of a compromise made in a room in Philadelphia to appease the slaveholding colonies. And we still use it. We're using technology that was built in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Right. In what other space do we do that? Medicine? No. Science? No. Literature? No. I mean, we study it, but we're not, you know what I'm saying? So this idea that the, that, that was a long time ago, why are we concerned with something that happened so long ago? Right. Well, the reason why we're concerned is because it still affects us today. And there's lots of things that were made a long time ago that affect us today, you know? Mm-hmm. So this idea that in the book that happens never been told, he talks about why that decision was made, right? Why people made decisions essentially that went against the values that they espouse and, and they all signed on for in the declaration of independence. It's so interesting. I, I kind of, just a side note, I say a lot of companies, you know, sent out some, some form emails that looked a lot like a declaration of independence, but when you look at them, it's more like a constant, you know, they're writing the constitution in a way that more reflects what they really care about, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's laying off DEI folks first in this, these rounds of layoffs recently, you know, or, or, or not structurally supporting internal DEI roles, turning them into kind of ritual sacrifices, you know, that all the racial gender, all the types of identity sins are placed upon this one person. And then mm-hmm. you put them on the, you know, you, you sacrifice them, so to speak, ritually, and then say, well, you know, I guess that doesn't work when it, when they don't succeed at, you know, meeting measures that are both unclear and unsupported by the, the infrastructure, right? It's like, it's a similar pattern. Mm-hmm. And the pattern back then was the reason why, and he says this in the book over and over again, you know, he said they did so because of their, it was in their own interest to do so. And he means specifically economic. And I think that there's something there, you know. I think that that is not just an 18th century way of making decisions. Yeah. So there's there's a lot in here. I, I want to underline at maybe one or two things. And one is I think it's really helpful that you presence that the systems that we are operating in today were all created by not legends, but actual just human beings. And it can be really helpful to just realize all of the systems, I'll say it again, were created by humans. And so we also have the power to like things that we take for granted in the US are like capitalism and all the different structures that we are operating in were all just constructs that we made up at some other point in time. And so that that is one way that the past is not in the past, that it, it's coloring our present. And so in, in terms of building the future we want, it, it can be, I know that I sometimes get stuck and it seems to be a very human tendency to get stuck in story of like, this is just the way it is. Like th- these are the systems and structures that we operate in. 
And it, it's helpful to deconstruct all that and to remember not only were they created by humans, but they were all fallible, just like you and I and everyone else. People that were maybe doing the best they could, but it was it's outdated and it's been a long time in, in the making that we need to take a closer look at all this. So I want to present that. And I think an, another layer that I know that you could really speak to that I have begun to immerse myself in is around the somatic component of the work. And we it doesn't need to be around what we've spoken about so far in this conversation, but I'm wondering if you could just present why somatic work has been so important to you. And I know that that has also shaped how you view your DE&I work and coaching work as well. The connection, I think, for me, I think came from studying what's what's known as healing justice spaces, the work of Resma Menachem, making the connection between what we're seeing and a need for healing. Also, the work of my mentor and friend, uh, Dr. Kaifer Lewis, she, she presented this idea to me that all change begins on the intra-personal level, so inside of us, and then moves to the interpersonal level, and then cultures and, and institutions are created from that, right? And taking that, so the reason why I bring that, that last framing up of like how change happens is because oftentimes when we're trying to go and change things, we're always concerned with either them or the system when we really haven't addressed the ways in which the system has metastasized within us. Mm -hmm. What are the vestiges of all these oppressive ways of thinking, being, because they're not just ways of thinking, they're ways of being. Like you have to, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. what do you have to do inside of you to own other people? right that's a very somatic thing that you have to do you i believe you know the empathy right you gotta you gotta cut off the connection between your heart and your mind right in the book in chapter four of that book he talks about this innovation called the pushing system and enslavement. And uh, one of the things, if you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, there's it's it's illustrated there visually, but it's essentially the system in which he calls them entrepreneurs, Southern entrepreneurs, innovated ways of making the cotton picking. Because when the cotton gin gets created, right, it separates, you know, the cotton and makes it easy to make the bales that you know of cotton but the 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 bottleneck was picking right you could only ship to england what people could pick and so if you wanted to increase the yield we didn't have i think he says a you know a, mech, a mechanized cotton picking system didn't come around until the 1930s basically ending sharecropping so all this time in this in the deep south you had an increase, I think he said from 1815 
1860, there's a 360% increase in productivity and, and, and picking, right? 360 in one person's lifetime, essentially. How did they do that? They didn't have any technological advances. How did they do it? Well, he says the reason, the way they did it was this thing called the pushing system. And essentially, you had to pick more today than you did yesterday. And if you didn't, you paid your debt with the lash, with the whip. Hmm. Right? And so he describes that in order to, to do this, you had to pick with both hands. And you basically had to turn your brain off. And you picked from the time the sun came up till it came down. And you had to disconnect yourself from your body while also simultaneously funneling all the creativity, all the energy, every single part of you that maybe could have found a cure for a disease, wrote a symphony, created some great art, wrote a book, right? Led a nation. <laughs> All that creativity that was in each one of the, each and every one of these people was funneled in this disconnected way into this, right? And I just think for my own ancestors, even how many times in this country we've had to do that. You just just cut it off. If I think and feel the fullness of what it is that is happening to me, that's happening to my child that is happening to my partner. If I think and I feel that it will crush me. And so I learn as a means of survival to, to not feel it as much, to not feel, to develop ways of coping. And so, and that is not about judgment. That is not about critique. That is more about survival, right? So then how do we begin to build for the world that we need, we, we, we have to begin to heal a lot of that. Right. And I think, I think a lot of that is held in the body because the body was the site at which it was, it was, it, it was the site at which all, you know, the labor, the work, the pain, the trauma was inflicted upon. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't just go away. On, in 1865, when the president happens to sign an Emancipation Proclamation, you have Jim Crow in the South, right? You have <laughs> the fancier version in the North and in the West. So it's like these things don't go away. And so the ways of coping with them, I don't think, go away either. And so how do we begin to heal? I think... Somatics holds a key. How do we begin to feel, process feeling, feel our bodies, listen to our bodies, trust our bodies? It's a process, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think for everyone, you know, in this country, I think that that is something we're conditioned to not do, mm -hmm. right? Is to, to not listen to ourselves, our bodies, et cetera. So, I think that's that's for me at least where a lot of the work is. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering if you could speak to it's it's a lot to look at and it's also 
the, the key in my estimation, and it seems like yours in like how we can move forward. If we, if we don't look at this, it just stays stuck individually and collectively within us. And I know in, in my grandmother's hands, Resma talks about different practices, I think maybe for the general population, but he also categorizes into white bodies, black bodies, and blue bodies, police bodies, because that's a major area that needs to be addressed is how do how do police, what internalized beliefs do police have about what it means to be black and what it means to be white? And I guess the, the question that I want to start with here is just what, what are some practices that you use in your own life or maybe with clients around somatics and, and understanding what's happening and maybe reintegrating, kind of creating this awareness of I don't want to be cut off from these experiences. It could be really challenging. And yeah, trauma is, is a, it's a tough word. People have all sorts of aversions and reactions to it. And yeah, just, just be curious to hear how you look at all of this. Let me restate it. So I get, if sure. make sure I got the question. So asking how in my conversations, I navigate the somatic element of what's happening to people as we have this conversation. Is that the. Yeah. Practices that you find mm -hmm. most helpful. For my work, you know, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot of different practices that aren't necessarily for, you know, specifically, I wasn't trained in them with a DEI end in mind, but I found them to be useful. Resma has some great exercises. He's done them on podcasts. Folks can find it like on the, he, he, he was on On Being with Krista Tippett and did some right there live. She asked him a very similar question and he does it on the podcast, you know, and he walks people through it. And so there's, there's so much out there. And I think, you know, whether it's centering, somatic centering or polyvagal breathing, like that's a big one because that creates uh, a lot of regular emotional regulation pretty quickly, but, but just ge general, generally like getting folks breathed, breathing and centering in at the beginning. And then also putting people in places where they build trust and connection to begin these processes. So rather than kind of jumping straight into the history, right? Mm -hmm. Giving folks a chance, especially at work, to at least have a, an opportunity to share parts of their story so that you can begin to build the trust that may not be there um, already so that you can have the requisite reserves built up to go through something difficult together. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like maybe a partnership or a couple going on their first road trip, you know, you never, you know, there's going to be beautiful parts. There's also going to be, you know, some wild card stuff. And the amount of trust that you already have gives you, you know, a bit of a head start and you're going to build some hopefully too on that journey. And so hopefully at the end, folks come out closer to themselves, closer to each other with a bit more understanding of where they fit in this work and how they continue it. And so I build in a lot of time and space to go over 
you know, practices and breathing and teaching folks how to regulate their own nervous systems, which is a great skill no matter what. Um, not something I learned in school. And so I feel grateful to have learned some techniques that work for me. And to also help folks realize, you know, when they are dysregulated mm. in general and what the mm. signs are somatically in their bodies, physiologically, so that they can then mature in their capacity to engage with each other and with themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I have listened to the podcast that you spoke about with Resma and Krista Tippett. And yeah, I, I didn't even make that connection when I asked the question, but what I think the practice that I remember from that podcast was something around orienting yourself to the room that you're in and making sure that I don't think most of us real. I didn't realize until I listened to the podcast, how much you establish safety by looking over your shoulders both ways and actually making sure that you rotate your hips when you do so. Mm -hmm. And I believe the psoas is the technical, right? Is that? Yeah. And, and so he had Krista kind of just turn over her right shoulder and make sure that her psoas was involved in the movement and then do the same going over her left shoulder and, he asked her, what is, what do you feel? Do you like before when we were talking about, which is it could be a very charged and, and heavy subject matter. I think she might've been feeling a little bit constricted and like I'm out of my element or something. But as she oriented herself to the room, she said, I feel safer is how I remember yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're describing that resistance that we feel to that, right. Is vested. I think, I think someone else, some historian can disagree with me, but I just, this is my personal opinion. I think that's a vestige of enlightenment thinking mm -hmm. where we think mind over body, yes. rational over emotion, right? Again, using operating systems that are, you know, from the 18th century. And so what Resma offers is, a, is another alternative. And I think what I, what I really like about that moment is I think that's what I try to do. And I've mirror, you know, picked that up from him is to like, let's try it. Because mm -hmm. the proof is in the pudding, you know, like, <laughs> the, the, does it work is it real oh come on that's like why are we we got tough stuff to talk about we don't have time for this right i'm like okay i hear you i invite you to try it see if it works for you see if you feel a little bit better see if you go from an eight to a seven or a seven to a six on the scale of you know dysregulation and just and just try it out and so i think the same thing goes you know i have folks do this breathing technique where and i was taught the way i was taught it is like it's like a silent whistle so you take a deep in breath and then you do a silent whistle so and long hold it almost until it's like tough to breathe and then you do that three times and if you do it like about three times you know your heart rate lowers. And this is a, a polyvagal technique, you know, and as you're doing it, I'm, I see you doing it now. I'm, I'm curious what you're feeling, right? I think folks feel that settle, settling in component, right? And the, the polyvagal work is so interesting because, and this is my paraphrasing of it, 
So I apologize if I get a part of it wrong, but my understanding is that, you know, this polyvagal nervous system pathway evolved so that we could connect mm -hmm. with other humans because we realized that if we if we only had fight or flight as the options, then we wouldn't be able to survive, you know, in large numbers long term. So we had to have a way of down regulating out of fight or flight so that we could be open to connection. You know, what I call with the kids and I call the green zone, you know. And so I think seeing this work as an attempt to move towards connection as opposed to an attempt to litigate. And not that there isn't litigation that needs to happen. I think there is. But I think a lot of times when we're talking about the intra and interpersonal work of this, you know, of DEI, I think a lot of it is about opening to connection. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you get to the cultural and the institutional size, I think litigation is actually what needs to happen. So we need large scale right yeah things that happen and and ways of restituting for the large-scale things that happened in the past like you know it wasn't as though everything that happened in the past was just intra and interpersonal but when it comes to like the question specifically of how do we do this work you know mm -hmm. a lot of that becomes like you know is it safe to connect in this space is it safe to hear things that are going to dysregulate me can I handle that? Do I have the resilience? See, in my own body, in my own practices, to make it through this difficult conversation where I'm going to hear some stuff that I might not feel comfortable with admitting to myself. The, the framework I use typically is the white supremacy cultural values, which... I'm, I'm sure you and some and people have heard of it, but it's always an interesting way of framing this work because it's perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word, only one right way, paternalism, either or thinking, power hoarding, fear of open conflict, individualism, I'm the only one, progress equals bigger, more, objectivity, right to comfort. And this is, again, this is based on the work of Daniel Buford. But, you know, when, when you begin to frame white supremacy in those types of words, it brings up a lot yeah. in everyone in the room, regardless of their background and where they come from, where their ancestors are from. Mostly because when you frame white supremacy through the lenses of even police violence, which it is, that is a vestige of it. But if you only frame it in that way, if you only frame it in Charlottesville, if you only frame it in crosses burning on lawns, right? It makes a lot of us feel exempt yes. from the intrapersonal work that we have to do. Mm. So when you begin to frame it in this way, and you, you ask a room of people, of, you know, San Francisco or LA or New York City based liberal progressives, mm -hmm. if they practice perfectionism mm -hmm. or if they practice defensiveness or if they feel defensive and let that and let that just ride and make that the way they make decisions, if they, you know, 
think that progress equals bigger or more. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If there's only one right way, that, you know, that brings up a lot of, oh my goodness. You know, like the system just begins to like, you know, short circuit. So I think that's why I rely so heavily on the somatic because that is the moment where you say, look over your shoulder, look over your shoulder, right? This is not an attack. This is an observation in the same way going into the doctor's office and them coming out and saying, this is what the issue is. It's not an attack. It's an opportunity. Mm. It's not an attack. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to discuss a treatment plan if you're willing. So that's, that's a bit of, that's a bit of why I, I, I like that work so much because it comes in really handy. It's a great toolkit to have. Yes. And it's great for all kinds of situations, parenting, relationships, mm -hmm. family, siblings, parents, Thanksgiving dinners, you know, like, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's potent. And, and thank you for naming all that. I, I want to speak out a couple of things on my end because they have been profound for me. Well, one, I, I actually, there was a moment there where you were asking me how the the silent whistle breathing was going. And I, and I did feel that there was a, a disconnect beforehand of, I was really in my head and not really feeling in my body mm -hmm. and the invitation to just do three silent whistle breaths. I felt a lot more, I was like, Oh, I can feel my feet on the floor. I feel grounded. I feel centered. I'm more open to whatever might emerge here in a subject matter that is still very edgy for me that I am yeah, like those qualities of white supremacy are very prevalent in me. And it's, I fucking hate that. And it's not enough to en enroll my mind in that, which is what a lot of progressive white liberal folks like myself have done for a long time. Mm -hmm. Convince ourselves that we are exempt, like you said, right? That stuff that's happening out there, that's not me. And mm -hmm. we need to fix them. And like, to a certain extent, like you've said, yes, of course, we need to take action. And that is a real challenge and problem. And all those qualities that you named, the, especially the defensiveness and what, what were some of the other headliners that you, you defensiveness, I don't really either or thinking is not as big of one anymore. But that's uh, running things on a sense of urgency is a big one. Right? Yeah, especially in organizations. Perfectionism. I think that's, I mean, the number one, I mean, that's a big one. Right. And I think, yeah. So yeah, just to name that I have, I've, I don't want to interrupt your, your, what you were saying, but yes. Well, that's the, I'm really glad that we, I, cause perfectionism for some reason was slipping my mind and, and perfectionism is perhaps the, there's a way that I am always not always, but a lot of times I'm like trying to do difficult conversations the right way in in big air quotes, which is a form of perfectionism, right? Like I want to come across as that guy who's got no shit to work through and who's sure. a great ally and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that somatic work has opened up for me is A, we, we it's the water we're swimming in, right? So there's, I'm not fundamentally flawed. No one's fundamentally flawed for, it's just like these systems have been 
invisibly operating a lot of us for such a long time. There's a, of course, I, all of these things are within me and like, let's actually just start there mm -hmm. and, and be with the somatics is that we can, it's very easy for me to say like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not scared of like walking through Harlem and, and my body is going to tell me whatever it's going to tell me. And mm -hmm. so it's the cues are always there in a way that you can't really argue with it. Your, your body mm -hmm. just does it. Mm -hmm. And, and that actually gives us fertile ground to like, okay, like let's, that's, that's why, that's what I found most valuable from Resmo's book, my grandmother's hands is, is full of practices and even visualizations of what are you experiencing in your body around these different scenarios? Like one that, one that came up for me that I think about on a regular basis is, and this one was targeted specifically for what he would call white bodied folks, like myself imagine going to a wedding and there's 250 people at the wedding and you walk in and you are the only white person at the wedding you look around and every other person there is black visualize it really allow the whole scene to be set and all of your senses are stimulated and what are you noticing in your body and i was like fuck <laughs> i don't what why but, but what was there is like, yeah, I felt there's a level of discomfort in my gut and that you can't argue with that. And that's, it's really, I found it really challenging. And also like, it's allowed me the capacity to, in my nervous system, it's like, okay, this thing that I haven't been willing to look at, I'm not stuck there anymore. That now that I'm actually presencing it and looking at it, there is more choice in like, I can allow that energy to move through me and have a, a conversation with someone like you around like, okay, so like now that I've presenced this somatic now, now, where do we, now, where do we go from here? Like, I, I don't want to feel this, this discomfort. So what do we do with this? I, I, I'd be curious to hear, uh, like, do you work with any one-on-one -on -one white body clients that are really just engaging working with you around like I want to be better in racial justice or social justice and like how how does that show up for you well first of all I, I want to say a couple things when you talk about you know the internal work right Grace Lee Boggs the Detroit-based activist radical thinker has this quote that I really like which is transform yourself to transform the world. And I think uh, as we talk about, you know, what, what we have to do, right? It is the internal work that has to happen first. It's not about, you know, your family or, you know, those people over there in that part of the country, right? It becomes, you know, how specifically do we begin to undo and heal? I like the word heal because I think yes, that is that's that's really I think what what has to happen. We have to learn other value sets. We have to learn grace instead of perfectionism. You know, we have to learn, you know, openness instead of defensiveness. We, we just have to reorient a lot of the ways in which we show up in the world. And that is not something 
you do simply through consent through, via the mind. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing of being like, I can do this yoga position in my head. You know, like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. until until you can do both, you know, then the then the utility of it, I think, is not fully realized. So your question of do I work with white bodied folks uh, around this work? Yes, that's that's really how I got into this into coaching is because I saw that in the training sessions and group sessions, oftentimes white bodied folks would kind of be in the background, you know, and and be for whatever reason hesitant to engage in conversation and really in the exploration. And I wasn't sure what was going on. And so specifically around leaders, it became a theory that I had that perhaps in a one-on-one -on -one setting, we could get to a place where we're discussing this in an honest way in a way that's not performative, in a way that actually goes somewhere. And we could have that diagnosis conversation because it's di everyone's different, you know, everyone's story is different, you know, everyone's coming from a different place and yet we all are in, in this water, right? And so that's, that's it's initially what brought me to coaching as a, potential practice and so a lot of what i've learned in coaching was not for dei work but i use it for that but i also have clients who you know that's not what we're working on but i have had clients who we are working on that and so uh, so yeah that's to answer your question yes i think it's a it's a space i see a lot of room for growth you know and Right now, the model is, you know, train, 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 train. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of utility to that, especially when the training is setting a foundation, right? If a training is getting everybody on the same page about why we're here <laughs> and what's going on, then I think a training has a lot of utility. But I am also concerned and interested in what comes after the training and like any new skill, if you're going to reorient your defensiveness into openness, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. In my estimation, it's going to take practice. And I think coaching, I think, you know, what are called communities of practice, which is basically groups of people of the same interest and passion about anything coming together to practice it. Those become the places where we skill up, where we begin to do the work of healing on ourselves mm -hmm. over time in a committed way. Those are the gyms, the workout sessions where we build the muscles that we've never used before mm -hmm. so that we can go out in the world and show up differently. And that process, that journey that we go on of reorienting our values and finding out different ways of working through conflict and situations with a new set of values that's different than the ones 
that I, I laid out earlier, right? When we ask questions about a conflict with a work colleague that says, what would a person who values collaboration do? Oh. Uh, okay. All right. Okay, so a person who values collaboration would ask a question to clarify instead of maybe making a statement of assumption. Okay, let's try that. Let's see how it goes a month later. How'd it go? Uh, it went okay. I kind of did a little bit of both. I kind of asked a question, but then I just, ah, it was too hard. I couldn't help myself. I made a statement. Oh, okay. How'd that go? Not, not the way I wanted it to go. Okay. What do you want to do next? different next time? Well, maybe next time I'll actually, I'm going to try it again to, to kind of just ask a question and see how that goes, right? That process, right? That is how change happens. And so many of us want to see the change happen in those people over there or that, that person in that room or office or, and yet how committed are we to doing the work inside? Because nine times out of 10, what happens is that when folks go on that journey, that intrapersonal journey, they learn certain skills and tools and processes that they can then impart to people when they encounter them, you know, and then they bring folks up in that skill set around even if it's just like in nervous system regulation, you know, thinking of teams in different ways, uh, noticing when they're working from a space of urgency or perfectionism in themselves. What are the antidotes to those for you? What, what works for you? You know, like, yes. And I think that is a process that it's like when you're listening to this podcast and you're putting it on three X speed, right? I think coaching is like three X I think communities of practice is like 2x. And then I think, you know, doing trainings over and over and over again is like 1x. Like it'll work. It does It does good utility. But mm -hmm. if you want to see change, I think, you know, those. that's kind of how I describe, you know, the rate at which the change could occur. Mm -hmm. I, I've never heard it described quite that way. But I, I, I like the comparison to the the speed times of the three different layers. There, there was a moment, maybe half hour or so in the conversation where you talked about just noticing dysregulation. And I think just having that awareness and having language around that in and of itself can, is a really good place to start for a lot of people. And it really made profound shifts for me. What are some markers that you help people look for within them to to see, yeah, I'm I'm dysregulated right now? I think the the most helpful, uh, and I say this for me. So, you know, you gotta find what works for you. And I think that's part of the process. For me, the key that unlocked it was heart rate. Mm -hmm. Both through smartwatches and devices and just noticing in my body but really it was i didn't notice it in my body until i i tra i trained my smart device to start tracking for me person in my body anytime i went over 100 and i was sitting mm -hmm. so i'd be in meetings and just sitting there taking notes listening whatever and all of a sudden my watch would go off and i'd look down and be like your heart rate is and i'd be like what and I'm like, oh, I'm getting upset right now. 
or I'd be in a movie, you know, and I come out and it'd be like, I have like 13 alerts or I'd be watching. I'm a Laker fan, you know, the Lakers. <laughs> and, uh, I come out the game would be over. I wouldn't even notice that I've gotten three or four notifications and you can watch the, the wave, you know, up and down based off of what what's happening in the game, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so that's just, that was the beginning for me of learning how to like notice, you know, notice that and, and notice that like, okay, something I'm not, I'm not in the green zone. Mm-hmm. And I think what was interesting for me was that when I combined that knowledge with some of the, the somatic practices, what was unlocked for me, and this, I don't, I, I don't know why, but this just is just like so counterintuitive. It was counterintuitive to me. And I think this is a vestige again of enlightenment thinking. I thought I had to think my, figure out the thoughts to, 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 to figure out the feeling and the, and the somatic experience, right? Mm-hmm. Put it in plainer terms. To bring my heart rate down, I thought I had to address the problem. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So if I'm in a meeting, and someone's talking spicy, I got to go talk spicy to them because mm-hmm. that's how I'm going to fix this dysregulation. It was uncanny to me that the practice we did before could resolve that heart rate, high heart rate elevation issue in seconds. And then from that space of openness and connection and calm, I could decide if it was even worth saying anything in that meeting, mm-hmm. in that space. I'm not perfect at it, right? Again, this is all practices and I'm, there's plenty of things that, you know, oh my goodness, like I don't have the wherewithal all the time to just do the breathing or, you know, but I'm trying to, you know, make it more, lean more towards that response than not yeah you know mm-hmm. i think the other part you know was uh, i've done a lot of work with dialectical behavioral therapy uh, which dbt and it's a huge i mean i would recommend anyone you know go and find some centers i mean this is just my recommendation i'm not a doctor or a therapist but i think the skills that you learn in that modality are just so helpful for being a human and walking around in this human body that responds and reacts to things, you know, and that has a history of things that happen to it. Some of those things are out of its control. And so it's trying to figure out how to stay safe and and how to identify future threats and harms. And so it's like, how do you navigate that? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of felt like going to driver's ed for my nervous system. You can't predict everything, but it gives you a lot more, ideas of what to do when things happen and even just down to emotional like being able to recognize emotions Mm -hmm. what what's the difference between the tonal it's almost like what does anger smell like or like the tonality of anger the tonality of sadness in my body the tonality of fear the tonality of anxiety like they're different tones almost like playing different you know almost like playing the same note in different instruments or whatever you want to say, but just learning 
those things and then what they're trying to tell me, you know, mm -hmm. seeing them as messengers that have important things to tell me. And I didn't even know they were messengers, so I wasn't listening, you know. Mm -hmm. And so anger means a boundary has been crossed. Okay, has there been a boundary crossed? Actually, yeah, this person did this. I didn't like that. Okay, I can address that and I can resolve that, right? Mm -hmm. Sadness means something has been lost. Have I lost something recently? Oh, yeah, I got a promotion. I lost all my friends in the way I used to, to work with folks, and people see me differently now. And now I'm not just one of the employees. I'm the boss. So when I walk into the room, people work, moved. I've lost the camaraderie. Okay. Huh. Right. I feel shame about this thing. And that's telling me that I'm afraid of losing community and being, you know, kicked out of the village, evolutionarily speaking. So it's like, oh, okay. Is that actually happening? No, it's not. Okay, well, then I can just say thank you for showing up. I appreciate your concern, Shane. We're, we're, we're going to handle it. You know, we'll take care of it. But thank you for coming through with that message, you know. And I think those types of practices have been helpful for me, you know, in figuring out. Figuring out is even an enlightenment way of thinking of it. I, I don't want to just like dump on the enlightenment, dunk on the enlightenment today, but it's it's very present because I'm reading I'm leading a book group on that half has never been told book right now. So we're diving into that really deeply. So, but I think it's just a it's just the vestige of that way of just only being in the head and not in the body, you know, um, and not listening to what the body has to tell us. So again, it is a practice for me. It's something I grow in every day, and I'm. I'm attempting to increase my capacity to hear and to listen. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I say that, I always get opportunities to practice, you know, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. It seems to be the way the universe works. It, it's been true for me too, that a lot of times if I, if I think I've turned some sort of corner or have worked through a challenge, I just, I get presented with the next big one, which is in some ways a, a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating the attention being paid to how much the breath influences our inner state and our somatic experience. So I wanted to maybe underline, triple underline that, that the breath has such an impact on, yeah, just the, the way that we are being in any given moment. And I think other things that have been markers that have been helpful for me are noticing my skin temperature, noticing just sensations in the body. So for me, the heart is a big one. And also my gut, my gut seems to be very reactive when I'm in a to use conscious leadership group terms, like a below the line, I'm triggered or reactive type of mm -hmm. state. So if I'm in fear or, uh, or anger, I guess, are the two big ones and, and shame and guilt too. I usually feel that in my gut and in my heart. And yeah, maybe tightness in the jaw or like what noticing different ways that your body and posture are positioned, or if you're clenching, have also been really helpful for me. And I, I really appreciate that you named that there's definitely a way that as a society, we make anger and sadness a kind of bad things that we need to figure out and get through and not just useful information that is signposting us towards something, which is what you beautifully articulated. So wanted to underline all that. And I know that you've, you've mentioned mentors a couple of times in, in today's podcast so far. 
I have, I've read Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown, and that opened my mind in, and, and body, I guess, too, in ways that I, I don't think I was really ready for it at the time. And I want to go back to the book, but I've heard you mention her a couple of times once today and, and once in the podcast I listened to you in with Joel, what, what have you most learned from her? She has a very interesting lens on, on activism and, and this work that we're talking about. Yeah. So I was introduced to her book, Emergent Strategy, in I believe it was 2015 or 2016. And that book is, uh, are you familiar with that book? I'm, I'm familiar. I haven't read it though. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I would highly, I mean, it's kind of a Bible for me, for my activism work. And it really shifted the way I facilitated these conversations and thought about them because it was one of the first texts that I had read that was not just addressing and diagnosing the problem, but also trying to present a way of doing it differently. You know, like, so, okay, so if we're not going to do things in this anti, if we, we're, we're anti this thing, but we don't really, what are we doing different? That was, one, that was one of the biggest insights initially when I first read the book, was that she's like, in all the organizations I worked in, we, we treat each other the same way, right? Just like we were kind of describing, right? I call it, you know, we're the calls coming from inside the house, you know? These are organizations specifically she talked about around justice work and they were replicating, you know, these values. She doesn't name these values, but essentially those values of perfectionism and, you know, all these things within the organization. And it, you know, it was tearing it apart. And so, in that book, I just was really appreciative of how she looks to nature as in, are there examples in nature that we can look at that can help us figure out ways of doing things differently with the understanding that, you, like you said earlier, that everything we're doing now are kind of constructs that were imagined and brought into reality. And I think, you know, I wanted to say this too, to track back to what you said about what feels like the absoluteness of these systems, you know, as much as I am cr critical of that generation of people who made those decisions, they also did something really interesting and kind of incredible in, in that prior, you know, they kind of said, what if we didn't have a monarch? Imagine that idea being floated as a system of government that could be the biggest country in the world at the time kind of you know kind of a you know maybe a similar feeling mm -hmm. that we feel today about what we have now and i think you know one of the things i appreciate about adrian's work is that it attempted to even go outside of like political philosophy and you know not that it wasn't grounded in that but it was just like okay can we just look can we just see look at another possible inspiration point than Rousseau or, you know, like, or, so, you know, just something that's kind of all only coming from one space. Cause we've got a lot of that. We've gotten a lot of that. So what does it look like to maybe look to nature as an inspiration for where, and so emergent strategies, you know, heavily underlined, heavily highlighted for me. And it's always one of the books I go to, especially for folks who want to like facilitate this work 
and she has a lot of other books that have come out around facilitation as well. But that for me, it just unlocked a lot for me. I had the honor of interviewing her in 2018 and, and that was just an amazing conversation. And yeah, there's, I, I don't know her in the person. I wouldn't, I, w- I wouldn't say I could call her a mentor in the personal sense, but I think I've been mentored by her work and her presence and the way she shows up and the content that she's made and created. And I feel grateful that I've had the opportunity to meet her in certain capacities. And so, so yeah, that's the connection there. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to get back to, we, we kind of started the conversation more around imagination and, and world building. And in preparation for today's conversation, I, I asked questions like, what are some topics that you absolutely 100% want to discuss? What's one question you would love to be asked? And the question that you wrote for what you'd love to be asked is, what seeds for the future are you planting? I think it ties in very nicely with just imagining the world that we are birthing right now in today's present day. So how, how would you answer that? What seeds for the future are you planting? Before I answer that, I just want to give a little context, even to that, that question, you know, because Dr. Crawford Lewis introduced me to this statement, you know, you know, planting trees, tree, planting the seeds for trees you'll never sit under is what this work is about. And to tie that back to the idea that we are sitting under the trees planted that are grown from the seeds seven generations before us. And we're having to eat the fruit of the seeds that they planted. And so that's a bit of the context where the question comes from, because it's very easy to look back at them and say, y'all should have made better decisions. Y'all should, you know, and really the question for me hit home when I began to think of ancestry.com you know, and what would it have been like to go back and talk to my ancestors? Because in a sense, I'm the tree that they planted, you know, when they disconnected themselves from their bodies to pick cotton faster today than they did the day before. It's hard for me not to imagine that a part of them did that so that I could eventually be here. So given that legacy, given that what was entrusted to me by them, what am I giving to the future? When I'm in rooms where constitutions are being written, what value set am I using to decide what types of policies, cultures, et cetera, are going to be built? Because they may not be the constitution of the United States, but they may be small C constitutions that end up impacting people down the line. So for me, you know, when I talk about love, safety, and belonging, those are the seeds I want to plant. And I got to begin to plant those for myself. Mm-hmm. How do I love myself? Love being, you know, the willingness to extend oneself for another's well-being, you know, which is the Eric Fromm def- definition, which is found in All About Love by Bell Hooks. Safety, you know, the, the, like we talked about, the ability to, to know that my own ideas are safe within myself. <laughs> You know, that I'm not going to have this kind of like self-critical position and belonging, the ability to be who I am, you know, for myself. These are practices I have to do. I am doing, working on, figuring out, discovering, you know, and I think through that, I want to plant those seeds and 
learn the practices that I can help other folks do the same mm-hmm. and hope, hopefully my kids will feel those, you know, hopefully the people I work with will feel those. And then by feeling those get, get a taste of that fruit because that's what did it for me. Right. Mm-hmm. As I tasted from folks who had been cultivating that in their own lives. And I was like, Whoa, this is it. This is way better than the other stuff. And so I'm hoping to, you know, create experiences where people get a, a chance to have that experience, you know, and and begin to cultivate it for themselves. Well, it's a wonderful notion. And I, I love the image of cultivating and nurturing that that inner garden, planting those seeds of love, safety, and belonging within and therefore casting it outward from there and what a beautiful vision to hold for the future of the world and and yeah we might not get to see those those trees in our lifetime but hopefully we have seven generations in our future away from us that are are bearing that fruit so i i really appreciate you naming that and and bringing this type of work into into your life, into your family's life, and and right now into this podcast. It's, in my estimation, very, very, very important work. So, Justin, I just have a, a couple more questions for you. Before I get to the kind of rapid fire questions, is there anything that we haven't spoken about today that you would like to bring into the conversation now? I think the, I think the last thing I will say is that Everything I say, you know, maybe perhaps sounds really good, you know, and it's beautiful, but I will be transparent and and vulnerable that like, as a co-parent, you know, as somebody who is a parent, a co-parent, I think co-parenting is different even in my estimation than parenting because you have just a different relationship, you know, with the other parent of your kids and, you know, but as a, being, being a parent, (laughs) I think if you want to, if you, if, you know, it's, it's very, you could, you could show up on a given day at my house and see where I'm at with this practice, mm-hmm. the true sense of where I'm at. And I, and I got, I, I just want to say that because it's like corporate settings, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to just kind of be like, yes. And you know, yeah, blah, 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 Ted talk it, you know, and not to denigrate Ted talks, you know, but it's just more of like, if you want to see where stuff gets really real like for me it's the most intimate relationships that i have and the unique ways in which those relationships are formed around my life and my life is formed around them so you know i i just want to say that like this work shows up every day internally when i'm the days that i have my kids you know you know i have them pretty much half the time and so oftentimes the spaces where I have to grow and stretch and practice the most are not at work. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's with these two humans that I, I care for, you know? And, and so I just want to say that because I don't want it to be, I don't, I want that to be in the room too mm-hmm. with a lot of these other things, you know, because it's, it's my real life as well. Mm-hmm. Like you can't see it, but there's laundry everywhere. 
You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's also true. And I think sometimes, and I, I'm quote unquote guilty of this myself of like only wanting to present myself in a certain way, in a certain light that doesn't acknowledge the reality of folks who are listening, who also have laundry in their living rooms and trying to figure out how to get from one practice to another, or, you know, like it's not that these things happen in some retreat center only Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the deepest space of practice is every day, you know? And I think that for me is not something I'm telling you or telling listeners. I'm just speaking of my own experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think I want to say that to kind of dissipate any notions of stoicism in the sense of like, Oh yeah, Justin is just always cool, calm, collected, regulated, aware, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I'm like, where's y'all shoes? Where's the, you don't have socks on? Why don't we have socks on? You know, like I'm not yelling, but I'm just like, I'm not just like, everybody needs to have socks on. Can you please get your socks on? Like, you know, it's, it's it gets real for me too, you know, and I, I think it gets real for all of us. And I think that's where this work is actually being used and practiced is, you know, in reality, not, you know, on top of a mountain somewhere where there's no one that's easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's much more difficult to come back and bring that insight into the world mm-hmm. when people are, you know, pulling on your shirt and, you know, spilling water all over the table and stuff, you know, on accident, you know, you just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's real. So, yeah. Well, I, I found the same for myself. My my personal relationships are often the I don't want to use the term pa- battleground, but they they poke at me in the ways that I am most easily poked, and and hence are the best work for me to be paying attention to myself. So, just a couple more questions, like I said, and they don't have to be quick answers, but they're kind of my go tos at the end of interviews and. The first one is what is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? I think the ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy is when I pour the hot water over the coffee grounds in the pour over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how it does something both similar and different every time Mm -hmm. in the way it looks and the way that it, you know, draws the water in and filters through. And so it's both calmingly predictable, but like curiously different mm-hmm. in terms of the way it does it every time. So mm. I, I think that way about nature in, in general, too, that mm-hmm. it's like very consistent and in some ways like monotonous and repetitive. And also it's uniquely different every every encounter you have of it. What is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? Ooh, that's a good question. A couple things come to mind. I was in marching band in high school. I played, I was about probably six foot, six foot one. I'm six, six now. So I was tall. Yeah. And I played, I was in the drum line and I played and we had four bass, four bass drums and I played the smallest bass drum. <laughs> so I was the tallest person playing the smallest bass drum in, in the, in the marching band. The other thing is I, I grew up watching a lot of like I a lot. I don't know if a lot is the right word, but I grew up watching anime. That was a big thing. I was I kind of found as a kid 
that was interesting to me in a way of again storytelling that was different than maybe some of the other cartoons and things that I was watching and you know it was all Toonami Cartoon Network so it was funneled through that specific lens I wasn't really reading manga or you know going outside that but I was like oh I resonate with the hero's journey that I'm seeing happen over 3,000 episodes in Dragon Ball Z you know like <laughs> but I would be there three o'clock you know after school trying to tap in and find out what happens and so uh yeah that's uh those are two things that come to mind mm-hmm and before I ask my very final question, I, I ask what's an organization that you would like to raise awareness for? And you brought in Southern Poverty Law Center. So I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about why you chose this organization and what they do. Yeah, you know, I I don't think any organization is perfect. You know, I think I often look at, again, the calls coming from inside the house for all of us. And I think that's reflected in our, the groups we form. So I just say that as a general statement about my choosing that organization doesn't mean that I think it's, you know, perfectly doing everything and that other organizations are doing terribly, you know, it's like, but I think they are an organization that is concerned with categorizing and naming the vestiges of these systems and keeping an account so that we don't forget where things come from, where they're going, the ways in which we've replicated the things that existed, you know, a hundred years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago. And so I think that work is pretty vital, you know, and, and the work of calling things what they are and not mincing words about the lineages that, things that we're seeing now oh no 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 that's not that you know like no this is like this this is white supremacy this is anti-semitism this is you know and so i i appreciate that work and have have used it and found it to be useful for me and so that's why i chose it Mm -hmm. well i will be donating and i'll i'll link to it in the show notes and invite listeners to do the same and i will link to where folks can connect with you your website and the resources books people that you mentioned, I will link in the show notes as well. And the final question that I ask in each and every interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in the words of Justin, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? I think what I'm learning in real time, you know, is that the meaningful life is one that is filled with connection Mm -hmm. vulnerability transparency honesty you know love abundance but primarily with others Mm -hmm. and sharing that with others and being able to be in conversations in rooms and spaces building from that green zone And that, that is both meaning and legacy, you know, at the same time. And an inheritance that I want to pass on as best I can to my kids. 
Well, thank you for that answer. Thank you for all of the uh, the wisdom, the, the courage, vulnerability, honesty that you brought into today's conversation. That was full of practical insight and also ways that you're honoring. We're all unfinished and have lots of growing to do. And I, I really, really am going to take away that notion of planting those seeds that we might not bear the fruit on, on those trees, but those trees are going to be there at some point. And yeah, it's in some ways that is challenging. Like I'm not going to be able to, to bear this fruit maybe. And in other ways, it gives my life even more and our lives even more meaning that we're able to create a better future and better society, better world for the, the people that are, that will come ahead of us. So I appreciate all the ways that you're doing that. And I know in a podcast, it's like you said, it's not, it's, it's easier to show up or it can be easier to show up and look a certain way and look good. And I'm hearing just how much this work you're, you're living and breathing it. And it's not just something that you're looking at, looking to show up good with. So uh, thank you for taking the time to be here. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Mike, for the thoughtful questions and for holding the space and for having this, this platform and using it to not just bring my work to the front, but also my colleagues and friends, Cara and Nat. So mm. thank you for the opportunity and for the time here today. All three of you make my job really easy and have a unique set of skills and gifts. So it was really awesome to get to know each of you and, and will continue to do so. And to all the listeners, whenever you are listening, I hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening and take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace. Thank you.